All right. I am excited about the book of Genesis. And I'm actually going to try something this morning. Could somebody bring me from the back a Jesus Storybook Bible? Um, could. Thank you very much, Kathy. We're going to read from the Jesus Storybook Bible here in just a second because there are going to be some things we talk about today and really through the whole book of Genesis in the Bible, really, that we, we need to approach as children. We want to come with a childlike faith and, and believe, um, believe in the Bible, and the Bible is radically supernatural. And I, I don't know about you, but a, a child has an ability to accept the supernatural. And as we get older, uh, for some reason, we kind of just drift towards naturalism, just natural examples and explanations for everything, and drift away from the wonder of supernaturalism. And so uh, we as believers are radically supernatural. We believe in a God, a God who is outside of time, and a God who has interacted within time, and a God who's even created time, created everything. And so we're going to come as children as we talk about, uh, in the book of beginnings, we talk again about creation. Last week, Russ did such a fantastic job just entering uh, into this book and setting the table by just saying, and that's the word and the phrase he used, setting the table um, for us for the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings, by talking about the origins of everything. Uh, that the book of Genesis tells us about the origins of all these different disciplines in the scientific field and all these different disciplines in mathematics. And we find the origins even of communications. In the beginning, uh, God and he said, and it was, we find the beginnings of communications, a communicating God. And so when we get out and we text message and we uh, call or we uh, do an announcement over Facebook or when we uh, read a, a road sign that says speed limit 75 miles or 70 miles an hour, whatever it is, um, we read that. All of that, that way of communicating has its origins in a communicating God. When we speak right now, we hear, we, we put meanings to words. Uh, all of that has its beginnings in the book of Genesis. And we're going to do a little bit of table setting again today. But I want us to read this from the Genesis, or Jesus Storybook Bible. And then we're going to go into our, our regular Bibles. And uh, what we're going to do is, is we're going to kind of do this in three parts today. We're going to do some intro work uh, again and talking about some big things and big concepts about the book of Genesis. But then we're going to go into verses 3 through 5 and Verse 5 in particular we're going to focus on, and we're going to use that as a template for uh, every other verse that comes uh, through the book of Genesis chapter 1 um, and up through verse 25. And so really the passage, uh, passage today is, is verse 3 all the way through 25, but we're going to mainly focus on 3, 4, and 5. Because the same content in verse 5 that we're going to pull is going to apply to verses 6 through 23. So it's the same pattern of God speaks and then Nothing, quote unquote, nothing that's out there. God's so powerful that even the nothingness of nothing obeys him, which is wild. We'll get to that here in a little bit. Uh, and the same pattern is repeated from verse 6 all the way to 25 and actually into 26. But we're going to hold that off for next week. So we're going to look at 3, 4, and 5. And then we're going to conclude with four big ideas that should be our response. Not that they're uh, exclusive, those four things, but four big things that should be an appropriate response to everything that we've just heard in this, in this sermon, so in this passage. So first, we're going to set the table again. <coughs> Excuse me. Sound like Hillary Clinton up here. <coughs> um, Okay, actually, let's just go ahead and pray. And uh, we have any other, yeah, repent <coughs> of that. But uh, <coughs> pneumonia, come on. Um, so, 
Okay, that's it. <laughs> Father God, we come with, uh, with uh, how we're supposed to. We're, we're supposed to come with, with uh, trembling and joy. Just that, that paradox of recognizing that you're the, you are the Almighty, that you're holy. And yet, uh, we're your friends. And we'll never be able to understand that paradox fully, but we come with light hearts, ability to laugh, with the ability to laugh. But also, uh, we come just gonna, here in just a second, we're just going to stand in awe. And we're just going to see how big and how different you are from us. And how you can do things that we simply cannot do. And as we look into this world, this created world, and we see beauty, certainly we see pain, but we see beauty that's beyond explanation. The best pictures in the world, what we say to them is that just don't do justice to the reality of the image. just doesn't do justice. You had to be there. And God, we, uh, we thank you for the beauty of this world. Help us to see the artistry and stand in awe of you, the artist. I pray for the students that are in the room here who um, are going to be inundated with messages that are contrary to what we're going to be hearing today. Uh, as they go to school and, and just in pop culture, just what the general sentiment in the, um, in the professional world, in the scientific world, and just the, the common thought of the day is so contrary to this. So God, help us to come as little children. Help us to come and just hear what you have to say and respond to it rightly. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, this is the Jesus Storybook Bible. The beginning, a perfect home. In the beginning, there was nothing. Nothing to hear, nothing to feel, nothing to see. Only emptiness and darkness. And nothing but nothing. But God was there. And God had a wonderful plan. I'll take up this emptiness, God said. I'll fill it up. Out of darkness, I'm going to make light. And out of nothing, I'm going to make everything. Like a mommy bird flutters over her wings and her eggs to help her babies hatch, God hovered over the deep in silent darkness. He was making life happen. God spoke. That's all. And whatever He said, it happened. God said, Hello, light. And light shone into the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness night. You're good, God said. And they were. Then God said, Hello, sea. Hello, sky, and great space opened up, wide and deep and high. You're good, God said, and they were. Then God said, hello, land, and there, splashing up through the oceans, came cliffs, mountains, and sandy beaches. You're good, God said, and they were. Hello, trees, God said. Hello, grass and flowers, and everything, everywhere, burst into life. He made buds, bud, and shoots, shoot, and flowers, flower. You are good, God said, and they were. Hello, stars, God said. Hello, sun, hello, moon. And whizzing into the darkness came fiery globes, spinning around and around, whirling orange and purple and golden planets. You're good, God said, and they were. Hello, birds, God said. And with fluttering and flopping and chirping and singing, birds filled the sky. Hello, fish. God said, and with darting and dashing and wriggling and splashing, fish filled the seas. You're good, God said, and they were. Then God said, hello, animals, and everyone came out to play. The earth was filled with noisy noises, growling and gobbling and snapping and snorting and happy scurfling. You're good, God said, and they were. And God saw all that he had made, and he loved them. 
And they were lovely because he loved them. Isn't that beautiful? Out of nothing. Again, okay, if you don't have this, pick it up. It's wonderful. It's awesome. Now, to the scriptures. Here's the verses. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And he separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day. And the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So let's set the table again. The book of Genesis. Uh, first, it tells us the beginning and it tells us the human story. We, as we look into the book of Genesis, are going to discover why humanity is the way it is, both in its dignity and in its sinfulness. Just in the first three chapters alone, we're going to find out why the world, why there is goodness in the world, and why there is evil in the world. Why is there this paradox? We look out in the world and we can just go on and on and on about the beauty of this universe, the beauty of the earth, the beauty uh, that's going on all around us. And simultaneously, we can flip on the news and we can see riots in, in Charlotte. We can see deep pain and suffering. We can see children dying and starving to death across the world. We can see deep, deep pain, both of these things. And Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are going to tell us why things are the way they are. We don't have to search for that and wander to and fro across the earth looking and seeking to find the answer. God is going to tell us why things are the way they are, certainly with mysteries as well. So we're going to learn about God. We're going to look, learn about creation. We're going to learn about covenant. We're going to learn about gender, marriage, family, Satan, work, law, grace, just in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Then in Genesis 1 through 11, we're going to see everything before Abraham. And this is kind of how the book of Genesis breaks up. It's kind of everything before Abraham, before, uh, so Genesis 1 to 11. And then from 11 up to 50, we see everything about God's dealings with his people. And this is a common thread that goes throughout the book. You have these big, big stories that tie the book of Genesis together from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. And those two big pieces, the two threads that connect it together, are number one, a thread of promise. Okay, so we're seeing, we're going to see human sinfulness. We're going to see a covenant in Genesis chapter two, where God says to humanity, if you sin, this will happen. On the day that you sin, you will surely die. <coughs> if you don't, you will live. The consequences come in Genesis chapter three because humanity, and we would have done the exact same thing, sinned against God, broke, God broke that covenant. Of works, and then in Genesis chapter 3, we see the grace of God begin to just flood in. We see that that day they did spiritually die. Adam spiritually died that day. He didn't physically die, which is a benefit of God's common grace. But we also see a promise come into being. We have a promise in Genesis chapter 3. The proto evangelion, the first gospel, the promise that there will be a seed, a one day lineage promise, a seed from the woman who will come and defeat our. Famous, in the wrong way, foe, the enemy, Satan. And then we see this come through the book of Genesis, tied through, we see, uh, we see a, a promise come out in lineage. And we see this happen all the way through, the, the seed that's promised, there's a lineage that goes through and it just weaves in and out the entire book of Genesis. And so these are the things that we need to keep in mind. There is a big picture of Genesis. God is dealing with his people in a particular way and bringing his full plan, the plan of the Son, to fruition one day. And we're going to see that tether all the way through. So we're going to see uh, redemption. We're going to see human sin over and over and over again in the stories of Genesis. We're going to see how awesome humanity is at getting in trouble. We're going to see how creative we are at screwing things up. 
Even the best of people. Even Noah. We see Noah. We see Abraham over and over again. We see these godly men and women doing really, really foolish things. And we see God coming to the rescue. We see redemption happening. This is the kind of God that we serve. A redeeming God. He looks at those who have sinned against Him and He comes near. This is what we sing about. This is what we talk about every single week. So these tethers that go through this story need to be kept in mind because what what we can do in the book of Genesis is we can get caught in smaller stories and kind of get confused for a little bit. We see in Genesis chapter 6 with the flood some confusing elements to it and it seems almost as if the big plan is set to the side. It seems like almost God is confused. Or how about Jacob wrestling with the angel and wrestling all night long and overcoming and yet only having a hip to show... Does that mean God is only as powerful as Jacob? Oh no. And so we've got to keep in mind that there is a big picture in mind when we go through the book of Genesis so we don't get caught in the small stories of Genesis. We need to keep in mind the big story. And we're going to see the theme of sinfulness and redemption over and over and over again. A God who saves. A God who deals with His people. Who chooses a people out of the world and says, I'm designating you to be a blessing to the world. Through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. So there's all these big pieces that are going on through the book of Genesis. And there is a tether of promise and lineage. God's dealings with His covenant people. When Genesis seems chaotic, we must remember the whole. The minor themes of Genesis have to be understood with the backdrop of the mega themes of Genesis. That will help us. (coughs) This is the old way to cough. When I was younger, here's how you coughed. (coughs) The new, more sanitary way is, (coughs) take note, verse 3, and God said, point number one, God is a speaking God. We've said this over and over again. You've heard this about God speaking. We see that through his word. But here we see God speaks with his creative voice. He speaks. Even when there is nothing, God is a communicating God. Communications are God's idea. Understand, uh, understand. We need to understand then God through His words and deeds. The moment God began to speak, He created. And the moment we find anything of God's words written down on a paper for us, we need to understand what those words mean. If I write a letter to you, or if I write a letter to my wife, um, or if I write a text, and it's easy for text, isn't it, husbands and wives, to get lost in translation, the meaning? You ever been back and forth, arguing and fussing back and forth about what you're meaning, and you're like, what is happening here? Because you can't put punctuation. Okay. Uh, <coughs> even in texting, <coughs> it's important to understand the meaning of the text. Correct? Uh, tone. And because for some reason, husbands and wives have this amazing ability to imagine the, the, the tone on the other side of the text message is, <laughs> you know? For some reason, rather than, you know, what it really is, it's, it's sent with love and compassion, and we both were just like, oh, what's going on? Um, and so, and by the way, that is a tactic of the enemy. If you read, uh, um, well, through the, 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 he's got schemes. That's a scheme, is to get people lo- get lost in translation. So God has spoken, and we have his words, and it's important for us to do diligence, to ask the Holy Spirit to help us to understand what God intended to communicate. He spoke and those words have meaning. His words mean something. And when I say something, I'm hoping that you understand them in the way that I'm intending them. And when you speak to somebody else, you are hoping that they are receiving those words in the way that you are intending those words to come across. And it's just basic communication 101. How often do we talk about uh, certain people being bad at communicating or good at communicating? 
God is a communicating God, and He has told us about Himself. And He has communicated things to us also about Himself in what He has created by His Word. So when we go out and we look at His canvas, this earth, this, the artistry of God, when we see, man, He is an unbelievable artist, and He can create everything out of nothing. And you've talked about, I've, I've talked to you about standing before a sunset and getting out of my truck and just standing in awe. And what should come to our mind when we do that is like, God, you're a creative God. You're powerful and you're big. I can't create a, a masterpiece in the sky, but you can by your very words. Cody and Rachel were just telling me about an experience out in California. And what was the name of that? I, I forgot. I was going to try to remember. It starts with an M, I think. Muir Beach. Muir Beach. They were at Muir Beach and at Muir Lookout. Is that what it was called? And they went up and just, he, the first thing Cody said was, man, the pictures just don't do it justice. Have you been to a place like that on our earth where you just, you, you take in a picture and you look at the picture and you're like, that, it looks small. It doesn't look anything like that. It's just, it just doesn't do it justice. Cody and Rachel got to stand and just look over the Pacific Ocean and just see beauty. God made that. When you see something so large, what does it make you know about yourself? small. You just feel that sense of. That's what beauty can do. But first point is God has spoken and we are to understand him and his intent. Communications are God's idea. So may we understand what he has spoken. We have a privilege that people before the printing press, you realize that before the printing press, God's people didn't have his word as available as we do. Or do you Realize that some of God's people didn't even get their word, get the Bible preached in their native tongue. And here we have, all over the place, Gideon Bibles. Bibles in our back pocket. We have study Bibles. I, I probably have six or seven study Bibles at my house. We have it on our phone. We have it everywhere we go. God has spoken and we actually have his words. Now you think about that. These comparisons, if you just had one letter from a dying spouse, would you cherish it? You would. God has spoken and we have his words. It's a privilege to be able to read, study, and know him through his word. Going on, so number one, God has spoken. It's good for us to be able to understand what he means. God has spoken and created. We can look at things in the universe and, and know things about him. Not as much as we can know in his word, but we can know about creation that he is good that he has created all things and he is powerful. We know he's big, he's large, he's creative. We know these things about him. Verse 3, it says, uh, it continues. So first point was from, and God said. The second point is, let there be light. And there was light. God's creating word. R.C. Sproul said, God pulls a rabbit out of a hat without having a rabbit or a hat. <laughs> Think about that. God's creative word is so powerful that he can say to not, quote unquote, I want you to understand this rightly. Okay, he can say to nothing. He can speak to things that don't exist. We don't have that ability. If we, do, if we try to do that, we get put in a madhouse. <laughs> God speaks to nothing, and nothing becomes something. We, we don't even have a frame of reference in our mind to be able to understand how that's possible. Andy said, uh, one way to make a creationist out of an <coughs> atheist is to say, here, fashion a human. And, uh, and they pick up and get some dirt, and they try to start making a, a human. And Andy 
or in the in the Christian slaps his hand and says, "No, get your own dirt." Because all we have to work with is things that already exist. And the way Andy says it, by the way, is a million times more clever and good. I just botched that. So. But the point is, God creates out of nothing. Now, Jordan and I love going to St. Louis. I love St. Louis. I've been to Chicago. Parking is too much. St. Louis, you can park for free. I know the city better. And there's more bricks there. And Jordan and I love bricks because I'm 30 and she's 27. And if you're 30 or 30 and 32 and 28... Typically, you like bricks, you know? I, we just love old brick-looking stuff and downtowns and, and big cities. And I love going across the city, and I look, look, look at the, to the left there, looking southwest, and you see the skyline, and it's old factory buildings, and it's old, old steeples, and you just feel like it's London or something. You want to go eat Reason candy and get some tea and just sit on top of a building and just watch it. The fog rise, and you just love, we love going to St. Louis. Well, we went to the St. Louis Basilica one time. It's free. You've got to go there. Has anybody been to the St. Louis Basilica? Okay. I want to talk to you about how just the awe of artistry, the awe of art, of good art. You walk in the St. Louis Basilica, and it's this beautiful, beautiful church building, and it's Catholic church building, and you walk in, and you look up <coughs> in the foyer, and this mosaic starts. Okay, and these tiny little pieces of glass just put and painted. If you look up close to a mosaic, it just looks like hodgepodge of nothing, right? It's confusing. A mosaic is all these millions of different pieces. It just looks like nothing. But then you begin to back up and you see all these little broken pieces that appear to have no shape or purpose. They, you can start to see the, the design. You start to think, man, that's pretty cool. Then you step into the main part of the St. Louis Basilica and you look up and you're literally blown away. The whole roof from side to side, the whole ceiling is this huge mosaic from top all the way down. And you just stand there and you're like, my goodness, how could this possibly happen? Like, who, who could do this thing? Well, here's the deal about the St. Louis Basilica mosaic. It was started in 1912. Anybody want to take a guess on when the mosaic in the St. Louis Basilica was finished? 57, anybody else? There's no way you, should, you can know unless you're on Wikipedia today. Okay, 57. Anybody else? Okay, no guess? 1988. It took 76 years. There are 41.5 million pieces of glass, painted glass, on the ceiling. Many, many artists had come and gone, died, and just continued that thing. Just on and on and on and on. It just seems like an overwhelming task. You know, like cleaning the inside of your truck? just feels so overwhelming, or cleaning your shed, your storage shed, or cleaning whatever it is that you act like doesn't, doesn't exist and doesn't need to be cleaned. You just keep shutting it and shoving things in there and just acting like, I didn't see that, um, right? This overwhelming task. Have you ever done something where it just felt so overwhelming? This is just going to take too long. It's going to be, it's just forever. It's never going to be done. Well, the St. Louis Basilica is like that. It's just, and when you go in there, you just, you, you can't do anything but just stand in awe. I mean, you're just blown away. You, seriously, you've got to go see it. You just stand in awe. And you think, how could somebody do that? How could somebody put 41.5 million pieces of glass in perfect order and make just this beautiful, beautiful thing? The most hardline atheist in the world would walk in and say, that was amazing. That's amazing. And yet, consider these things about creation. There's order, design, complexity, and just amazing things about the St. Louis Basilica. We stand in awe of such a magnificent feat. But consider this about a creation, out of creation. Out of nothing, not in 76 years, out of nothing, 
God speaks and instantly whatever He speaks comes into being. There are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. 100 billion. Not 100 million. 100 billion estimated stars in the Milky Way galaxy. There is an estimated 100 to 200 billion known galaxies in the universe. 100 to 200 billion known galaxies, each with billions of stars. The human body alone contains over 10 trillion cells. And how God created it was out of nothing and with only a word. Now, here's the irony of this. Okay? Let's reduce some little apologetics word, work here. Cosmological argument for the existence of God and a teleological argument for the existence of God is the first cause argument and order and complexity argument. Typically, a skeptic, and ever all of us, use logic every single day. We get in our car, and we believe that the risk of getting in our car is worth the reward. We know that there's a risk, maybe one in... 5,000 times you get in a car, you get in a car wreck, but it's southern Illinois and it's hot and humid and you want air conditioning and you want to drive and you don't want to get to where you're going pouring sweat and needing a shower. So you get in your car and you drive across town or you drive to work. You calculate the risks based on logic and you say, the reward outweighs the risk. I want to do this. But let's just say that if the statistics for driving a car was every nine times out of ten, you got in a car wreck. So one time, you get there safe, nine times out of ten. Well, universally almost, people are going to say, if there's not a reward for like a billion dollars or something like that for that one in ten, ten chance, I'm not taking that chance. I'm not driving a car. I'll take a horse. Because we use everyday logic, risks, rewards. Okay? Now, when you begin to think about the bigger questions in life, not just about monetary safety, like, or just like, or not monetary, momentary safety, like driving in a car, when you think about the bigger, biggest questions in life, uh, creationists just believe, as we look at the order and the complexity of the human body, we say certainly there's mystery to creation and everything, but we see order and we see design, and we say that the artist demands worship. He deserves worship. This complexity, this order, this beauty didn't happen by accident. It didn't just happen. Nobody would say about the St. Louis Basilica, even though there's 41.5 million pieces of glass, and it never crosses anybody's mind to say you walk in there and the, you know, the curator of the place says, well, you know what? In uh, 1974, this just happened. We know what happened. 73, it wasn't here. In 1974 was the year of the St. Louis Basilica, and it just happened. Nobody would say that. Nobody would believe that. And yet, we often buy into this idea that given enough time, given enough opportunities, eternally existing matter that doesn't have any intelligence at all brought forth more intelligence and brought forth life. Death brought life. Nothing brought, or matter brought something. And the creationist or the theistic person just simply says, you know what, I think it's more probable that God, God, are there questions? Yeah, but I think it's more probable the creator of the universe created everything. An intelligent being created intelligence. And that life came from life. 
And so there are reasons. There is logic that certainly is rejected. Some of the things that I'm saying here, there are hardline skeptics that would say, see the exact same evidence and say, no, given enough time, Richard Dawkins' argument is given enough time, given enough universes, even though the chances aren't great, it happened. It's like, okay, there's people who buy that. But for us, we've come to see that this created world, the complexity that we see, is put together by God. There's two things that typically happen when we start thinking about creation, though. There's mistakes. There's always two, two mistakes. How are we to respond to this, cre- to this creation, to the beauty of it, the pain of it? Well, Romans chapter 1 tells us of one wrong way to think about creation. Does anybody here just love the outdoors? Raise your hand if you just love being outdoor. I love being outside. I really do, except, again, in the summertime here. Then I hate it. Um. But when it's halfway decent outside, I love being outside. <coughs> when you stand in front of an ocean, when you stand and see a mountain peak, it's beautiful. It's just incredible. And because of the beauty of creation, there are some people who begin to worship creation. This has always been the case. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 to 25 says this, For the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and for unrighteous, in the unrighteousness of men by, who under, by their understanding suppress the truth. And this is what happens when we look at the evidence, when we look at creation, and we suppress the truth because we can't get every single answer of how all this came to be. When we suppress the truth and reject the everyday logic that we use every day, when we apply that to creation, when we reject it, we, we're suppressing the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, so they are without excuse, talking about people. For although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give Him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and by their foolish hearts they were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and the birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to the impurity and the dishonoring of their bodies amongst themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshipped and served creature, or creature, the creature, rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. Amen. So one error to creation that we can make is worship creation. This has been in the history of the world what has happened time and time again throughout culture to culture to culture. We've seen paganism. We've seen animals. We've seen creation worshipped. We've seen idols being fashioned by hands and made. And we don't need to fall into that trap. Well, I don't know many people here are in creation worship. The other is more common amongst Christians. It is uh, the, the Gnostic error, which is popular in, in Jesus' day, and it's the idea that the, everything the created world is, is bad. So error number one is to worship creation. Error number two, area number two is to say that everything in the flesh, everything that is reality, everything that's physical is inherently evil. In the church down through the ages, this has happened. Sex, music, you name it, any sort of entertainment, it's all sinful. There's a sacred, secular divide, uh, and, which is a kind of a variant of this, where we say, well, music and movies, just, and we put blanket statements on everything, uh, alcohol, things that are, all, it's all bad. Just all bad. Sex, only to procreate, 
Not for enjoyment. All bad. And that's another error. And I think this is the error that we can run into where we don't value creation enough. We don't see its beauty enough. We walk past the sunset. We don't stop and pause and thank our creator for it. We missed, I had a uh, youth pastor that always said, did you, hear, did you hear the birds singing today? And you know what? Most days I don't hear the birds singing. I'm too busy. What if we stopped and heard the birds singing? And we said, God, thank you for sending singing birds today. He could have made silent birds. In fact, there are silent birds. But these birds sing. You go out there, in fact, sometimes so loud that you, you do hear them because you can't go to sleep because they're right outside your window. God made singing birds. Have you heard the birds today? He would always ask that. Almost every week, have you heard the birds today? No, I haven't today. So creation is not to be worship, but it's not to be labeled as evil. So we think about culture. We think about things in our world. God created them for good, and they're to be received with thanksgiving. So for us, we don't need to fear creation as if it's going to get our heart too much. We are to see it and see God through it, and we are to see the goodness of it and just simply worship. God, thank you for creating the things. Thank you for Little Grand Canyon, God. We went with Hank and Marie. I thought I was going to die a couple times. I had Ransom on my back, and Ransom kept telling me, Daddy, be careful. Be careful. <laughs> you know, and Hank and Marie, they're like goats. They can just jump over everything. It's all wet. They don't care. They're country folk. They just run and jump up cliffs, and, you know, I'm like, you know, being really careful. And uh, it's, God, thank you for the Little Grand Canyon. You know, you need to go to the Little Grand Canyon. You need to go spend time in creation and thank God for it. If you don't like creation, start liking it. Ask God to help you see the beauty of it. Go sit out at a park, a giant city, under a pavilion. Go out today at Evergreen Forest and just look at the trees and say, God, thank you, you created that. I can't do that. I can't make a tree. But you made a tree. Thank you. We miss evidence all around us and miss opportunities to worship God because of what he created for us to enjoy. When you bite into that really good pizza, God, thank you that food was your idea. You created bodies that needed energy. When you drink your soda of choice, aspartame and all, you taste it and you think, God, thank you, you made that. Charles Spurgeon talking about a cigar and, you know, there's some people, whatever, if you smoke too much, then you should stop. But uh, D.L. Moody came to Charles Spurgeon and, and, uh, one day, and <coughs> uh, I think it was D.L. Moody, and said, uh, Mr. Spurgeon, you know what you're doing to your body with that cigar? And he said, about the same thing, Mr. Moody, you're doing with your fork and knife. And uh, <laughs> Moody was really large. And another man talked to him about smoking a cigar, preached a whole sermon on it at the Metropolitan Tabernacle where he was, a, he was a preacher, talked about, railed against the damages of cigars and smoking and blah, blah, blah. And Spurgeon gets up there and the first thing he said was, Tonight, sir, I know that some men, what for some men may be sin, other men can do to the glory of God. And I am going to go home and smoke a cigar to the glory of God tonight. And his point was, if God created it and I receive it with thanksgiving, Yes, there's risks, but so there is in getting a car. Praise God for it. And if you can smoke a, a, a cigar to the glory of God, praise God, smoke a cigar to the glory of God. Enjoy His good gifts and thank Him for it. And I'm not talking about being irresponsible. But God has created us and the joys of life that we can just savor. Cookie dough ice cream. Are there better things to eat for your body than cookie dough ice cream? Yes, but is there better tasting things to eat than cookie dough ice cream? Oh, no. 
And you bite into that cookie dough, and even though it says don't eat raw on the side of the package, you say, God, thank you that you made a human body that can eat and taste this good thing. Thank you for that. And all of a sudden, a Dairy Queen blizzard becomes an opportunity to worship. <laughs> it becomes an opportunity to worship. These things, okay, keep in mind, we're, we're theistic people here. We believe, we're creationists. We believe God created everything, but then we miss pieces like that. If we're consistent, we stop becoming naturalists and just say, well, well, it's just a natural process, ice cream and all this kind of stuff. No, we thank God for it. We, every single day, there's so much that we miss because we become naturalists and we just assume that things are the way they are. It's just the way they are. And we miss that God is sovereign over everything and He's given us good things to enjoy. So when we're out eating cookies, eat cookies to the glory of God. Thank God for the grass. Thank God for the oxygen. He has created, and it is good. Over and over again, this is repeated. Go back to Genesis 1. He created, and this is good. He saw that it was good. And God saw, verse 4, that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Now, you may have heard there is some controversy around the word day. There is some controversy in the broader evangelical world, in the non-Christian world, about the origins of everything. There's a man named Charles Darwin. There is uh, another man named Ken Ham. There's a huge uh, ark, Noah's Ark replica that was just built in Kentucky. Uh, there are diehard 6,000 uh, years folks out there. There's diehard 10,000 year folks out there. Then there's diehard gap theory people out there. And there are all sorts of theories that circle around this word. And that was the first day, morning and evening. Well, morning and evening mean typically, well, that always means one day, morning and evening. Yep. And that's what I believe. But we're going to talk through this, and there are many different uh, positions that people have taken. But I want, to keep, I want us to keep in mind that we are supernaturalists. We believe that God spoke to nothing, and then things happened. Everything came to be. What I want us to not forget is that, because what we start to do when we start, as, even as creationists, as we start to consider the origins and every, of everything and timelines and lineage and how things came to be, we become naturalists almost immediately. Let me explain. Well, God created vegetation before sunlight. Therefore, how, it has to be 24-hour days, or no, it's got to be this long, or it's got to be long periods of time, because how could plants live without sun? And here's the deal. I'm pretty sure that if God created everything out of nothing, he could sustain plants without sunlight. Okay, we look at the Grand Canyon. Well, the Grand Canyon took millions and millions of years to, to look, look. Okay, the Grand Canyon, the evidence is clear. It, it, it's got to be old earth because, you know, when I see a stream in my backyard or a creek, uh, clearly there's only time to erode uh, just a little bit. And the Grand Canyon started with this little, you know, stream up top and it eventually eroded over billions of years. Or God created the Grand Canyon. Okay, if you imagine being uh, just alive with Adam and Eve, uh, and it's day eight. Okay, it's day eight of creation. You go to Adam and Eve, the fall had happened. They're in tears. Okay, you console them for a little while, and uh, and you talk to them, and they you just ask, "Hey, how did everything get here? Because it looks like it's been over a billion years. It looks very very long. We see already in the in before the fall, even there's there's mountains, there's grass, there's trees, there's adult people." Is it possible that if you put a modern-day scientist, evolutionist, there on the eighth day, 
and you put Adam and Eve, that the evolutionists could begin to argue and say, see those mountains? You know how that happens? There was an earlier ice age 500 billion years ago, and it pushed the tectonic plates, and over years, after 10 feet of rising per year, uh, over these, these many years, this mountain, range begin to hap this mountain range happened. That's the only explanation. You see that river there? You see that canyon there? The only way that can happen is if you have billions. You see that tree there? How big and magnificent? If you cut that, Adam, if we get a saw and cut that, what you're going to find is there's rings there, and it's going to tell you how old that tree is. Or God created it, mature. Like Adam and Eve were created, mature, with the appearance of age. Now, there are questions. It doesn't solve everything. But do you think it's possible that Adam would say, no, no, seriously, here's what happened. Like we were, I was just talking to him in the garden the other day, and I sinned against him. But what happened was I, I was just in charge of naming all these animals. See that? See it over there? I just named that the other day. Then questions like, okay, well, how are there only marsupials in the island of Australia? How did only marsupials get there? Did you, uh, when before the, you know, how, like, did they hop over there or swim? Did they, were they somehow able to be there? So after the flood, did all the marsupials get together and kind of get in cahoots and say, we want to go down south and start going down south altogether? They're, they're, okay, what about micro-macro-evolution? Uh, Ken Ham argues for micro-evolution. Micro so the flood, how, all the animals of the world, really? Yeah, right? It makes no sense to be all, all the animals of the world, two by two, into an ark. How is that possible? I don't know. Um, maybe God, in one ark, had 30,000 arcs invisible in different realms and got, somehow all of them got in there. I don't know, but I don't want to become a naturalist after accepting supernatural realities about God speaking. Somehow or another, God can do it. And then what happens, okay, where did Adam find his, or where did, where did uh, um, uh, their son, Cain, where did Cain find his wife? I don't know. Maybe God created more people after he created the original family somewhere 30 miles east. I don't know. I don't know how, there's, there's questions that we don't know. But remember, we are radically supernatural. There are supernatural answers that we could go with and we can just trust that naturalistic people are just going to reject. And we come not, we come intelligently to that point, not unintelligently to that point. We believe that God interacts with us and the God of the universe who's so huge interacts with us and has saved us. We're, that's radically, radically out there. We believe it with all our hearts. So what if God created more animals after the flood? Well, there's not enough time for microevolution to happen. The, 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 the genes and, and the, the expansions and the, uh, what's it called? Uh, now I sound like a complete idiot here. Uh, the mutations and all of that. There's not enough time in 6,000 or 10,000 years for all the animals that we have today, all the different breeds of dogs. There were just a male and female dog, and now we get all our breeds of dogs we have here today just in 6,000. There's just not enough time. Well, maybe God made more dogs. I don't know. But what I know is, God created everything out of nothing. And even though all these things surround it, I think we can come as a little child as we read the Jesus Storybook Bible and say, God, you created in six days. I have no idea how. Maybe those days mean periods of time. I don't know. But here's what I know. Regardless, I know you created everything out of nothing. And I think that's a good posture for us to have. Well, the evidence looks otherwise. It would have on day eight as well. And we stand back and say, you know what? This is what happened. God created everything out of nothing. 
So that's going to be helpful. You're going to go and you're going to, I'm telling you, you're going to get pressed upon with evidence. A couple years ago, I read the book, uh, Why Evolution is True, and it's just a basic apologetic for uh, evolutionary theory. And they've got some good points in there, and it raised some questions that I don't have answers to. But I'm simply okay with an intelligent, getting to a point where I can intelligently say, God, I trust you, and even though I don't understand all the evidence one way or the other, I believe you created everything out of nothing. And I think that's a good place for us to be as well. Final point is how do we respond? There's four, actually four points. How do we respond? Our response to God creating everything out of nothing. Number one is fear and awe. God is big. I am small. Woe is me. I am at his mercy. I am not in his debt. He owes me nothing. A God that can do what we just talked about doesn't owe, owe me anything. He owes me nothing. Woe is me. I am different. I've joked before about my lack of ability to make things. I'm very good at breaking things. Not very good at making things. I'm learning, okay? But along the process, I will super glue my hands together. I hopefully won't. Might saw a finger off. I don't know. Uh, I'm just not that creative. I'm different. And you know what? Anybody who is creative, Jordan is incredibly creative. She's creative with existing matter, with stuff. We're different. So we stand in awe. God creates it of nothing. God's word creates. My word is broken. Anybody ever here told a lie? Does anybody, by saying, here's what we're going to do tomorrow, have you said that before and then tomorrow be different than what you thought it would be? Your word gets broken all the time. All the time. We don't have... Has anybody planned a vacation perfectly out and it went exactly the way you planned it, other than Rachel. Because um, she's fantastic. Even with Rachel, though. Have you ever made plans for, this is, how, this is what we're going to do on vacation, and vacation ends up being different than how you planned? Okay, things about your life, plan your life out in your life, and yet God's word does not return void. It, it, it goes out and it does what it intends to do. Andy, you can go ahead and come up. He knows everything about me, fear and all. He knows everything about you, and you're at his mercy. He knows everything about you. He knows your flaws, your sin, your rebellion. Um, our response also to this should be uh, beauty. And this is within point one, fear and all. When we see beauty, it should cause awe in us. It, it should produce awe, not just fear, awe. God, you are wonderful. Point two, repentance. God, I'm not like you. Sorry for living as if I am the center of the universe. When you are recognize your smallness, you rec recognize that the point is Him. That's what creation should do for us. God, you're the reason I live and exist. I trust you, what you have done for me in Christ. As we see the magnitude of Genesis 1, it should jolt us out of living a self-centered life. There's a God who matters more than me. And I want to exist for Him. He created me. I'm in His possession. And then He purchased me with the work of Christ. Three, joy. Because Christ, the Creator is our Savior. This big God has saved us instead of crushing us. We're His. God the Creator is God our Father. God knows everything about us and still loves us. He knows everything about you this week. And He loves you because of what Christ did for you 2,000 years ago. This creator, as Russ so brilliantly preached on last week, this creator of everything, 
went to a cross. And he died in your place. That is powerful. So joy, because our creator is our savior. And last, worship, which goes along with point B of point one. Awe, worship. We see God through the things of earth. Worship the God who created marriage, sex, laughter, instruments, cookie dough, food. Enjoy the good gifts of God and see God behind the gifts. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You've created us. Uh, God, we're yours. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. You own a cattle on a thousand hills. And you own thousands more. And you own every inch of the square universe. All those 200 billion galaxies have square inches. And you own every square inch of every single billion galaxies that we have out there. You're a better artist than the artists who work on the St. Louis Basilica Mosaic. You're more creative than the most creative artists in the world. You're the only one true God. You're Jesus, you're the King of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You created everything and we are at your mercy and your mercy we have received. Help us even as we stand to worship. Help us to respond to your creative word well. Holy Spirit, thank you. Lead us in Jesus' name. Amen.